0: But we have a very antiquated understanding of what a family is. It's very narrow. It's that, and not only is it narrow, but we also have a judgment about what a good family is.
1: You're listening to this is, home. This, is home. this is Home. This is Home. A podcast about families. We're going to be allowed to cry. Brought together through unlikely circumstances. We were lost. There was a few weeks where we didn't know where we would live. And the
2: remarkable relationships
1: they forge. I'm Erica Gerard. And I'm Emily Skihan. What does home mean to you?
0: What does home mean to me? What's my jerk answer a hammock?
1: <laughs> Your apartment in Los Feliz. <laughs> water. Let's go oh, in at water. Sorry. Home means safety. Home means comfort.
2: What did the idea home mean to you?
0: So I think the concept of home for me, which has evolved, when I was a kid, it was definitely all about my mother. My mom raised me. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was three, and she primarily raised me. So, wherever my mom was, was home. As I got older, and I'm an only child, so this makes sense. As I got older, I think home was about a place where I felt I belonged and found comfort.
2: This is Mia Birdsong, co founder of an organization called Family Story. Her professional background is all-encompassing. She's apprenticed as a midwife. She's performed country music, advocated for prison abolition. She's talked about sexual health with teenagers. She's unearthed interesting data and told stories. In particular, she has a fabulous TED Talk. As someone who could probably register for her fan club, I've noticed one through line in all her work has been lifting up the voices of people who are often ignored. Left at the margins.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, it. It is a. It was a very unintentional route, for sure. It's not like I had a plan when I started out. Um, but I do think you're right. There is this. There is this thread of um, me wanting to work with folks in a way that allows them to recognize their own agency and their voice and their strength.
2: Mia's work now is Family Story, a media project that insists that there's more than one right way to be a family.
0: Yeah, it's really an offshoot of all of those things. It's looking at um, how in the United States over the last 50 years, there's been a huge explosion in the diversity of family structures. None of these structures are new, but there are just more people um, doing family in different ways. But we have a very antiquated understanding of what a family is. It's very narrow. It's that And not only is it narrow, but we also have a judgment about what a good family is. That primarily comes from um, the religious right from um, Christian conservatives and says that a man, a cisgendered man and woman raising biological children is a family. And that family was very briefly the norm in the United States, but it wasn't, you know, before the 40s, and it's not now. And our policies and our practices and structures all really cater to that family structure. And in order for us to shift those policies and practices and structures, we actually have to shift the cultural narrative that we have about what makes a good family. So that's why Family Story exists. So the, the thing that we think of as a traditional family, and, and let's be, we'll be super clear. So it's not just that it's a nuclear family, but it's also one in which there is a male breadwinner and there's a woman who stays at home raising children. Um, our economy only supported that kind of family for a brief period of time, like from the 40s to the 60s. Um, it's, it is um, incredibly rare for that kind of family to exist now, it's I think it's around twenty percent of families are that way, and raising a family is incredibly expensive. Um, and our economic structure is not set up so that most people can do that. So there's that. You know, um, in nineteen in 1960, um, only five uh, percent of kids were born to parents who were not married. Um, it's 41% now. Um, Among millennials who have kids, it's 51%. In 1960, 72% of adults were married, and today it's only 50%. So, you know, over the last 50 years, we've really seen this shift away from what that brief period of time when we had um, what we think of as a traditional nuclear family and that image um, which was, you know, which we saw on Ozzie and Harriet and leave it to Beaver. Like there are these ways in which it, it kind of seeped into our cultural narrative too, but that's really not what families look like. And even, you know, when I think about a show like modern family where you have a blended family, I think is what people still say, right? So you have two people who are divorced and have remarried. They have Stepchildren and grown stepchildren. One living at home. And then they have a biological child that they've had together. And then you have um, two gay men who adopt a child. And then you have you know a man and a woman and their biological children. Even in that context, none of the women worked. Like so, and, you know, and they're all they're all like upper middle class. So even even when we when we've seen some shifts in um, the kind of pop culture narrative of family, it still harkens back, I think, to what we think of as a traditional family. And when we do see representations of, um, you know, single parents or divorced parents, there is always this um, element of failure or the shame or the tragedy um, that exists in it. In order for those characters to be likable, they also have to kind of, um, you know, sacrifice themselves on the altar of the nuclear family. And um, yeah, so we're kind of stuck with this narrative, um, but that's not really what our families look like. If we look at the data, that's not what our families look like anymore.
2: The research and advocacy that Family Story does helps to show that there is historical precedence for this in an attempt to normalize families' experiences and decrease the shame created by our false understanding of what is right or normal for a family.
0: In order to, we know, you know, we know that in order to make... To pass the policies that we really want, in order for people to have the will to pass those policies, they have to believe that the people who are going to benefit from those policies deserve it. And right now, the folks who are least likely to have, um, you know, what we think of as a traditional nuclear family, which is not a tradition, are poor people, are people of color, are queer folks. And those folks are marginalized for other reasons, obviously, um, for their identities. So what we want to do is lift up those um, people who's, who, who live in non-nuclear families, and particularly folks who are kind of like at those intersections of sexuality and gender and race and class, and um, just make it clear that there's nothing superior about nuclear families.
2: Similar to our work on This Is Home, family story tells stories, lots of stories. These stories not only serve as good examples for people that want a roadmap to follow of the non-cookie-cutter family, but they also help rebuke myths that have been embedded into our collective psyche, despite any connection to relevance
0: or truth. So the big project we're working on right now is really focused on Black families. So for the Black Families Project we're working on, we're looking at media representation of Black families as compared to white and, you know, other families of color. With the understanding, I mean, we've, we are media people, so we pay attention to the media a lot. And you see Black single mothers get criminalized in ways that nobody else does. The status of a woman as um, a single mother will be um, inserted into news stories where it doesn't have anything to do with the content of the story. There is a pervasive myth of Black absentee fathers, despite evidence, like actual, you know, data that shows that Black dads are as involved and in some cases more involved than other fathers. There is this idea that because poverty and race are conflated in the United States and people of color are overrepresented among poor folks because of Systemic racism. There's also this idea that like poor families and particular poor families of color um, don't care about their children. One of the things I like to talk about is from if you if you have like the kind of white middle class gaze on a black family where and and this and especially if it's like a social worker and there's a child who is moved from the parents' house to an aunt's house to a grandparents' house. The narrative about that is that the child's life is unstable from our perspective, what we're actually doing is we're moving this kid where the most resources exist, like the child knows all of those people and has been with all of those people. it's just a different roof because our families are are, are exist beyond um, the walls of one particular home. The work that we're doing on representation is really looking at at um news and opinion media representation of black families to show. where the biases are, and to give journalists a way of understanding that so they can shift what they're doing.
2: And one of the end goals for Family Story is to shift the policies that impact the day-to-day lives of real families.
0: Where I think we're failing is that we don't have the practices and policies and structures that actually support families, regardless of what their structure is. the idea that um, we can't take time off from our jobs right to care for people when they most need us to care for them and that we have people that people have to make decisions about like how, how much time can i take off to take care of my grandmother who is dying or my child is like you know my 3 year old is like miserable and Um, has a cold. And also like the daycare won't allow them to come (laughs) because they're sick. How am I going to make sure I make enough money in order to like pay my rent? Um, Those are not decisions people should have to be making. We're one of like two or three countries in the world that does not have paid maternity leave. And I mean, not Western countries, not developed countries, but countries, period, in the world that does not have paid maternity leave. The idea that people have to, that the time off that they get um, to have a baby, um, they're not getting paid for that, that they can actually sacrifice income and that they have to send their you know infant back. They have to send their infant someplace so they can go back to work is absurd. Never mind like the fact that we should have paternity leave and other maternity leave and that people should be able to you know care for lots of folks who are part of their lives. For the most part, the way that leave structures are created is so that you can take time off for family. And family is defined as people who, you know, are blood relatives or um, have some kind of legal tie. So you're married to them or you've adopted them or whatever. Many of us who have family outside of those two ties, we have chosen family. It's folks who we consider family and who are behave as family in our lives But we're not legally tied to them and we're not um, biologically tied to them. We need to be able to care for those people, too.
2: Talking with her so much about families made me wonder, what's Mia's family like?
0: I am a cisgendered woman married to a cisgendered man. We own a home. We're raising a boy and a girl. We have a dog. (laughs) You know, I, I fit that kind of image, except I'm not a white woman. Our family wasn't always that way. Um, my, neither my husband or I grew up in what I would consider traditional nuclear families. But what, that's what we have right now. And there's nothing better about our family structure than than the family that my my husband's family of origin or my family of origin or the families of my friends. I know so many black folks who have cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents who they did not know were not blood relatives until they were adults um, they're just people who your parents told say this is auntie whoever or this is nana whoever or this is your cousin so and so and then I'm you're like oh that's like whatever so so this this kind of um, division between blood and law and then what some people call fictive kin um, just doesn't exist for us these all these people are our family and all these people show up when um, somebody needs something we, they show up to celebrate they show up. To mourn, they show up when there's been a crisis. Um, They show up for, like, you know, graduations and birthdays and all of those things. And they take care of each other.
2: What you described to me, it's like this messy amoeba of love and of community and of strength and of people stepping up. Um, But I think one of the things that I encounter so much is when I talk to people who don't have that traditional quote unquote family. And I do this, too. I, I start to talk about it, and I'm almost apologetic. You know, people say, oh, well, I'm a foster parent because. Or, oh, I kind of have this little sister. Or, I or I'm a single of, mom.
0: Yeah. It didn't work out. Like, yeah. When you have, um, I mean, this is this is so much of why family story exists. Because, because there has been no counter narrative to the idea that a nuclear family is the best family, that even though that that narrative really has originated and been pushed by folks um, from a very conservative place, it's really seeped into the mainstream. And our understanding of, so our understanding of what a good family has come from there, because nobody else is telling us otherwise. And I think that sense of apology, and that sense of shame, is one of the things that I mean, it's heartbreaking to me because people have these incredible stories and these incredible families that are doing all of these amazing things and and that are, you know, functional and like healthy and full of love and raising, um, you know, amazing children um, in the way that we would want children to be raised. And they have shame about it and they have embarrassment about it and they have a sense of failing and that is, that's really heartbreaking to me. And we really need to tear those things down and pull them apart and look at the underlying values that we really have.
2: Emily here. Erica, I just want to say I really connect with Mia's perspective. I think she puts so precisely, so elegantly, the unease a
1: lot of us feel with so-called unusual families. Yeah, it's interesting. I think many people, myself included, feel a kind of underlying shame for doing family differently. And I don't know where that comes from, probably the media, No, definitely the media, but I find myself having to consciously remind myself to reframe the way I think about the family I've created and to think about it as a source of pride and accomplishment instead of anything less than. You know what I mean? What about you?
2: Yeah, for me,
1: it's not even necessarily that I feel shame. It's just that I feel tentative. Yes, I tentative is a perfect word.
2: Like, I always have to have an asterisk after explaining who my partner is, who my teenage foster daughter slash mentee <laughs> slash little sister is. And I think Mia and her work at Family Story and also our work at This Is Home are part of the way we change that. Mm-hmm. And the more we see just how many examples of family are out there, the more we normalize it, because there are lots of models out there. It reminds us to be proud, that we aren't new in
1: the arc of history and we will continue to see more families like ours. That's right, sister. So listeners, we wanna hear from you. How has the media impacted the way that you view family? Is there a cultural moment, a TV show, or an advertisement or something you read? that made you feel like your understanding of family could open up? Shoot us an email at hello at thisishomepodcast.org. You can also record a voice memo on your
2: phone and email it to us. We want to include your stories on the podcast.
0: Again, like family is not about marriage. It's not about biology. It's not about um, law. It is about love. It's about connection. It's about community. It's about caring. It's about having a a place where you belong. And I think when you ask people, like I ask people all the time, like, what does family mean to you? Very rarely do people start with marriage. They start with like, it's the people who show up for you. It's the people who love you. It's the people who care for you when things aren't going well. They go to all of those things that I think are, are pretty universally the things that really matter to us when it comes to family.
2: You know, So many people aren't sure that they want to have kids, and yet we discount that you can be a parent without being married, getting pregnant, having a
0: child. Totally. I feel like we've we've lost this idea of the roles that people can have in raising children um, and really limited it to parenting. We don't have a lot of examples of what it would mean to not become what we think of as a mother but to still actually play a really primary role in raising children. I think we've we've missed this opportunity to think about what would it look like for us to be able to be to parent, but to not be moms. I mean, I don't know, you know, the labels also get confusing. I think many of us who are moms think of asking folks to help us with our children as a burden. And when I've talked to people on the auntie side, what they've reminded me is that time with my kids is a gift and they love them. And they want to spend time with them because you know when we think of other people caring for our children, it's usually in the context of like babysitters. Um, it's people who were, we've we've commodified that role, so it's somebody who we have to pay in order for them to spend time with our kids. So I think that if we if we stepped back and actually looked at the opportunity that exists both for and I'm speaking again, I'm talking primarily about women in this context, but like for the opportunity that exists for me as a mother and for a good friend of mine as my daughter's auntie for both of us, for me to allow her to play a greater role in raising my daughter, you know, that's, that's a huge burden off of me. Like I get, to, there's more space that I have. She gets the opportunity to spend time with this young person that she loves. And my daughter, I mean, she clearly benefits the most because she has other caring adults in her life, I said to my friend Mariah, who's one of my daughter's aunties, and I made a very specific request of her. My daughter's 11. And I was like, you know, in two years, she's going to be 13. She's not going to want to talk to me about anything. And um, I need you to shore up your relationship with her so that she is going to you when she needs to make decisions or she wants to ask questions that she's embarrassed to ask me or whatever. And, you know, I, I obviously hope as a mom that my daughter and I stay close, but I'm also realistic. And I think for, for parents, it's really about taking the risk to ask for help. What, let's
2: say I'm a millennial. I don't want to have kids. I like this idea of helping to raise a child or or helping to be a support to a family. You know, I'm not going to walk into a low-income neighborhood and knock on someone's door and say, (laughs) hey, I'd be willing to provide free childcare." What? How can we create these informal networks?
0: Well, I think people have to do it where they are. Um, It's not about... It's not about, like, you know, going to somebody else's community and trying to be family with them. It really is about creating it where you are. You know, for young people who are deciding not to have kids, there are also going to be young people who are deciding to have kids. And I think it would be amazing for more folks to actually have those conversations with their friends. You know, we have, um, we have conversations of commitment with um, romantic partners, right? Um, but we don't tend to have those conversations with friends. You know, we move, we'll move across the country for a job opportunity or for a romantic relationship, but we don't think about, you know, where are my people? Like, if you have a group of friends who live someplace, like, what would it mean to choose to move to where they are to actually commit to being family with each other? You know, I don't know what that looks like. I think that the reason that it exists in black communities is because that's how we do that's how we've been doing for a long time so there's a tradition of that the reason it exists in immigrant communities is the same thing the reason it exists in queer communities is now it's a tradition but like there was a necessity there that people had to um, figure out how to create family um, because they were not they were outside of their biological families so I think that without the tradition and without the necessity people actually just have to have um, the drive they just have to, like, make those decisions and be um, take the initiative.
2: Thanks for listening to This Is Home. You can find a link for more information about Mia Birdsong and Family Story on our website, thisishomepodcast.org. Or you can search Family Story Project on Facebook or Twitter. You can also find Mia on Twitter at Mia Birdsong. A huge thanks to Mia and her husband for taking the time to sit with us. Be sure to check out
1: her fantastic TED Talk entitled, The Story We Tell About Poverty Isn't True. This is Home is Erica Gerard, Emily Skihan, and Christina Lindstrom. Our sound engineer is Juan Diego Borda at Harmonic Studios. Our music is by John Menes, Logo and site design by Lane Carlsness at Broadsheet Design. Remember... We want to hear from you. Leave us your comments, questions, or stories
2: about family by emailing us at hello at thisishomepodcast.org or on Facebook and Twitter at This Is Home Cast. Our website is thisishomepodcast.org. Till next time, hug your loved ones.